Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. Well, that? Uh, are you better? Oh, what? What? Technically, Whoa. only Mark Ellen. Whoa. Would take a microphone and place it in a bowl <laughs> full of um, sachets of sugar. Most of which you split, <laughs> such is the weight of this huge chunk of technology. Can you hear me? Is it making, it's not any harm, is it? No, that's fine. We're laughing. We're away. We're a bit worried uh, this time yesterday because Mark Allen sent an email around saying he'd lost his voice. Yeah. Yeah, there's a big, big party going on at home. <laughs> my wife and all her friends. It was on the news. That. It was on um, the news. But you appear to be coming back, Tragically, it has come back. Yeah, so there we are. So we're joined in the pod this week by Andrew Collins. Hello. Uh, just in case everybody thinks that they've been rather worrying on the website that we have adopted a policy of only having guests from Northern Ireland. Yes, that's true. I, I'm slightly... We had, oh, well, Barry and Eamon in, in two weeks. We had Barry McElhenney, and then we had Eamon Ford last week talking about music business issues. He was and particularly good, though, on the very good. Irish front because he has a very interesting cocktail of accents, which he explained. <laughs> he does, actually. Yeah. And, and I think we were all, we all gripped. This just in, uh, I got an email this morning, Neil Young press release, because I know you follow the things that Neil Young does and yes, doesn't do. do very closely, yeah. Um, and it says... Neil Young's recent flood of creativity that has yielded the new studio albums Greendale, Prairie Wind, Two Living With War Sets and Chrome Dreams 2 continues with the new album Fork in the Road that will be released by Reprise on April the 6th. This is the track listing, Mark, and I want to know if you're excited about the new Neil Young album. (laughs) Track one, When Worlds Collide. Two, Fuel Line. Three, just singing a song. Four, Johnny Magic. Five, cough up the bucks. Six, get behind the wheel. Seven, off the road. Eight, hit the road. Nine, light a candle. And finally, fork in the road. Is that a, is that a self-contained narrative with a beginning and end? I think it's, this is all about is his car, isn't it? Movie? Is it? It's about his car. It's I think it is. Car. It is. Oh God! <laughs> yeah. No, seriously. You know he's got this. He's working on this very, taking it very seriously. This kind of car that runs on, I don't know. 
chip fat or the, oh, <laughs> whatever it is. And so, you know, he was supposed to be putting out this massive retrospective that he's been working on for 30 years or whatever that the whole world is waiting for. And he was supposed to be doing it this year, wasn't he? And presumably he just walked into reprise one day and said, you know that big box set I was going to put out that everybody was really happy with? <laughs> so what, instead... I'm going to put out my new album. It's called well, Fork know, in the Road. I, I, I have more intelligence than that because, he, in fact, the, the anthology was put back for him to put out a, a record about the American economy. Well, that's what this is. It's not. This is all about fuel and, and his this hybrid car. This is his solution. He wanted to be the first person to get in to see Barack Obama when he was, you know, moved into the White House. Neil wanted to pop in there and say, I know how to solve all the problems of the world. It's my new car. A car driven by nettles. I think it, it, <laughs> maybe it, it runs on Neil Young songs that weren't good enough to put out. Although yeah, there aren't there's no such thing anymore song. because he puts those all in his albums now, doesn't he? He's become the prince of rock. He just puts everything out. And as a record company, they're prepared to put everything out that he, want, that he makes. No he editing must, process no. at all. He must have a contract that enables him to just put out what he wants to, yeah. I suppose. Didn't I, talking to Prince, did I read this morning that actually Prince is putting out another triple album very soon? Fantastic. Is he... I think, I think that's what I read. But why, why do we want three records? I don't think we do, well, but Prince wants to put them out. They'll be spread out across three different um, national newspapers, will they? That's one true. One in the Mail, one in the Mail on Sunday, one in the Express. <laughs> Never thought of that. Never thought of that. It's the only way you can get people to buy his records or even listen to them. So, um, um, Eamon Ford last week was talking about music business issues, particularly, particularly I suppose, tickets, actually, and ticket yeah. prices and, and the fate of Ticketmaster and Live Nation and all these things, and which, which people were very, uh, very taken by, weren't they, on, on the website? That's terrifically informative. And very informative, and led to loads of interesting thoughts, actually, as to setting fair prices for tickets. And Cornwall Guy, who corresponds on the site says he doesn't understand why, they don't, why bands don't bypass ticket agencies and just place tranches of tickets on eBay. He says more of them could be released the nearer the show gets. That way they guarantee a sellout, get the maximum possible revenue and reduce losses on resales by releasing a few tickets a week before the gig. He says, I'm not suggesting I as a punter would benefit, but the existing model doesn't seem to be working for the bands based on the whinging their managements have been, uh, been coming out with. What do you think of that? Well, it doesn't seem to be working for anybody, does it, really? Punters aren't happy. The only people who are happy are the people who put the extra money on the ticket agency. So anything that cuts those terrible people out would be a good thing. I suppose the only people who are really happy are the people who are selling tickets then selling them on. Yeah. You can't... Um, it's the middlemen. It's always the middlemen. Um, I, there was a, a headline on the... It must have been the Evening Standard yesterday about somebody treating treating their brokers like whores. Do you know this story? Is it a city no. story? It was literally the headline. It said, oh, okay. he treated his brokers like whores. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Well, well I thought, well, that's, that's, that's incorrect. Brokers are pimps, aren't they? All middle people are pimps, effectively, aren't they? They're not whores at all. It's the pimps that are the problem, not the whores, I would say. <laughs> That's my view. I just cleared that up. <laughs> yeah. But equally, eBay will become a pimp, wouldn't it? Because the minute you put anything between you and the ticket, it's a pimp. What's the most you've ever paid for a ticket? <laughs> I, I bought a Paul McCartney ticket when he played at Earl's Court. You remember before... He was absolutely everywhere. He was nearly everywhere. But <laughs> there was, a, there was a, I think, I think a, a teacup full of mystique still left about Paul McCartney. He played, he played at Earl's Court, and uh, we bought two tickets on eBay. Now, I can't remember how much they were, but they were a lot more than Roughly, they would have cost. But, was well, it, we, we, yeah, probably into the hundreds. Yeah. But we really thought this would be a good thing to do. I'd never seen him or the band he used to be in, or the other band he used to be in. So I thought, let's, let's do it. Let's go to Earl's Court and have a nice night. And we did, and we, we knew we could pay over the odds, but we did. And it was the only time we've ever done it. 
Um, I've also bought Arctic Monkeys tickets during their biggest. What did you, what, what did you pay for them? Oh, not not that much. It was just a case of finding ones that that you know were out there because we were talking about. I was really thinking that's what struck me when you were, you, you about Eamon Eamon's sort of broadcast was not just the the way that you uh, the complicated way you get tickets and whether that's fair or not. It's just how much people are prepared to pay. I mean, the most I've ever paid was one hundred and twenty-five pounds to go to. I know this won't be universally popular, but to go and see Cream at the Royal Albert Hall. And it, it is a really odd experience, isn't it? To pay that much money, yeah. Because it's uh, my feeling was it was like it was exactly like being in a black cab. Um, you were spending roughly the same amount of time as you would do in a London cab. Uh, at the end of which, you would see 125 pounds on the clock. If you know what I mean. So yeah. then, when they play a song you don't like, you're panicked. It's like that business of being no, stuck in a traffic light. You know, you know, oh my God, it's gone up another five pounds. I, I do occasionally go to the theatre to see to see plays, um, and you pay a lot for that. Yeah. You just do. And you can only like it or not like it, really, with a play. Uh, you know, it's, it's comparable yes. because the gig tickets are going up now. They're up to West End theatre prices. But they're uh, more. And more. They're more. Uh, but you go and see a play, and you don't want to sit up in the gods. You want to sit somewhere where you can see. Because, of course, when you go and see a play, it's some men and ladies walking up and down, and you can't always hear them. So you need to be near the front, or at least somewhere decent in the stores or the circle. And, but once you've gone in... Even if it's a two-hour play, you're either going to like it or not like it. You're not going to go, oh, I don't like this bit, but hey, there'll be another good bit. Yeah, absolutely. Moment. It you, won't pick up near yeah, the end. You've got more chance yeah, at yeah, a rock gig. Yeah, you play that singular ball. Do the hits. <laughs> Do the hits. Yeah. Where's the mold? There is no encore. It's just like we belch back on. Yeah. <laughs> so in other words, you're more likely to be entertained at a rock gig. You're safer going to see a band you like anyway, unless they're particularly... But what are the chances of being... How much is Van Morrison chance? Well, this is what I was going to get on to. Van Morrison is doing Astral Weeks on tour, which he's, he's done in the United States, and he's bringing it here. And at the Albert Hall, it is 200 of your English of your pounds. English English pounds. Shiny English pounds. And that is for one person. That is not, not even including the person you want to take along and delight. Now, how do you feel about so that, Mark? already 400. You've got uh, maybe a gin and tonic half hour. Maybe a little supper before. Maybe Pizza Express. We're around the 450s, aren't we? Before the old grump himself. <laughs> now, how do you feel about Potter that? Potter on stage, stand with his back to you. <laughs> I mean, do you, do you go to that with a glad I heart? Just can't, I can't understand. I just cannot imagine that anybody would get their 200 pounds. Am I being... Well, I think it's, it's um, in the year of Darwin's you know, anniversary, it's all about natural selection. And the people who are prepared to pay £200 to go and see Van Morrison, it's their own fault. <laughs> and if they are prepared, and they are, obviously, we know they are, or else he wouldn't bother charging it, then that's fine. The people with that much money who are that interested in Van Morrison and will go and Pizza Express beforehand, then they, that, that's natural selection. I wouldn't, pay, I wouldn't be paid £200 to go and see Van Morrison. <laughs> You see, it's interesting. Your theory chimes with something that somebody linked to on the, on the site. Uh, Tim Harford, who's an economist, who's writing in the Financial Times about these kind of things, he said, to secure tickets for a hot concert, you usually need to go to a ticket tower because a regular concert prom- promoters wouldn't dare charge a price that might bring demand down to the level of supply. So they want it to seem more... Well, no, they can't. You know, than it is. What could you get people to pay to see Van Morrison at the Albert Hall? Well, possibly some people are £1,000. Could you put tickets on, on sale at £1,000? No, because you as a concert promoter and Van Morrison would look terrible. Yeah? And so the intuitive explanation, he says, is that we irrationally object to high prices, even when the alternative is rationing, long queues, and uncertainty about whether we can buy what we really want. 
So we, we don't like to feel that we will pay as much as we will pay. You know what I mean? Which is kind of what Andrew's saying, isn't it? Yeah. You know. Yeah, there must be people paying £200 pounds thinking we've got quite a good deal. You know, I would have been quite happy to pay £300. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, Van Morrison Astral Weeks. I want to talk about this. Because, you know, I, when, I, when I got out my turntable not long ago and dusted it off and played Van Morrison's Astral Weeks on the original vinyl, it is one of those rare pop records that has completely not lost its absolute Lust. magic. It's just unbelievable. You know, it's a moment in time. It was made, what, 40 years ago? Just recently, wasn't it? You know, they made it like three sessions. Very unlikely, you know, 20-year-old bloke from Belfast. Bunch of jazz musicians. Producer who'd never produced anything before. You know, they went in there and they lucked out in making one of the most extraordinary records ever made. So now, 40 years later, Van... Presumably, without listening to the original one and thinking, I could do that better. Thinks, highly paying guys with ponytails playing fretless bass. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And uh, thinks, what's that guy who's always playing percussion? What was that? Ray Cooper. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He thinks, I know, I'll revisit that moment and won't that delight the public. Now, I'm saying this is the single most uncalled for repetition <laughs> of something in the entire, you know, not very glorious history of not just music, but all entertainment. If ever there's anything that just didn't need doing again, it's Astral Weeks. How can he possibly add anything to it? He can't at all. Because, it's, because it starts off by being perfect, is what you're saying. It's, 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 not, it's more than perfect. Good. It's a moment in time. You know, you can you, you sort of you go back and listen to it, and it's that week in 1969, whenever they did it. It's not something. It's not made like loads of records are made nowadays, which is kind of industrially assembled over a period of time, and sort of doesn't belong to any particular period of time. But that presupposes that we should never revive old plays that were written. I'll go back to theatre again. I sound like some kind of theatre buff, but I'm not. But uh, if you go and see Death of a Salesman, that speaks of the time when Death of a Salesman was written and probably first performed, and you're going to see a version of it, but it's the only one you've got. I mean, you're saying you listen to the album, you don't need to go and see him play it. You're better off staying at home. Um, well, yes, I suppose that's, that's one element. But what about but seeing I... him play it then, you know, 40 years ago? That would have been a different thing, wouldn't it? Because he was still in the moment. Okay, but that would have been... Van Morrison, 40 years later, is not the same person. No, he's not. The musicians no, not are not the same people. You know, it's, it's sort of like James Joyce going in a right portrait of the artist as a young man again when he was 75 or something like that. It's kind of pointless. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's about being young. But also... And, and, and it's not... You know, I don't think the play analogy quite works because plays are subject to loads of interpretations by loads of different... There's production, there's direction, there's design, there's... Yeah. There's all those things that change those things massively. But actors are just I mean, band members, aren't they? What's the best thing? What's the best thing that Van Morrison can hope for of his in 2009 um, performance of Astral Weeks? Well, it sounds exactly like the album. Absolutely. Yeah, so what's the point? Well, there's no point in ever touring any album then, even the day after you made it. No, you see, it I never sound like the album. But I think Bob Dylan, you know, who God knows has cruelly let us down over over the years. You know, <laughs> Bob Dylan goes back and tries to, and does "I Pity the Poor Immigrant" again. He doesn't want it to sound the way it sounded originally, did it? Does he? Well, no, he does. I mean, Bob Dylan's theory clearly is that he feels that his songs are in a, a permanent state of evolution. Absolutely, and that the day yeah. that he records them was just the way that song happened to sound that day. And in fact, two days beforehand, it would have sounded slightly different. 
And when he performed it four days after recording, it was different again. I mean, I don't know what Van Morrison's theory is here, but going back to your, your play analogy, I mean, it's not music that particularly lends itself to interpretation. When I went yeah. to see Creed, the great advantage of that, whether you like it or you don't, and I adored them actually when I was a kid, was that this is, um, this is spontaneous, improvised soloing based on a song structure that you broadly remember and like. And therefore, the version of it that they were going to do 36 years later, being 30, with, with 36 years more musical experience, actually, I am afraid to say, was even better, uh, wonderfully, than it was when I was a kid. Whereas, I think he's very limited by the fact, as you said, that, that what people really want is, is an exact reproduction of this record uh, in, in all its glory, which, which they're not going to get, and they couldn't possibly get. It can only lead to severe disappointment. At two hundred pounds a pop, at children pounds a pop. At least the pizza express will be fairly reliable, though. Pizza express will do well out of it. The people selling the GMTs will absolutely be making hay. But there'll be a lot of tearful faces, Dave. That's the wrong. I don't think they will. I don't think they're not going to hear that. They're not going. They're going to relive a moment, probably, aren't they? To, to spend. They're the not evening. even reliving it because well, when he, when he, you know, when that record came out, I mean, it barely got released in Britain. You know what I mean? He wasn't touring at the time. Not in Britain. You know, it's the kind of thing you heard on the John Peel show or whatever. Uh, I think people want to go and see it so they can tick off Van Morrison, Astro Weeks, tick. Maybe, yeah. Cup uh, final, that's tick. true. But why Opera, is it, is it, why tick. Why is it we of this? We all approve the idea that, um, you know, ABC's lexicon of love is being done. Which I couldn't afford to go and see, by the way. Oh, which is <laughs> probably <laughs> more than this. Yeah. I mean, I no, it's several not people are going, and all they want to know is, will Martin Friedman wear in the gold suit? And I think that, and that's great. I really, I, that, you know, because without the gold suit, the experience wouldn't be right. And you could say that the ABC and the album were kind of showbiz and cabaret. They weren't, what? Astral Weeks was, exactly. which doesn't make it better or worse, but just yeah. different. It's a different kind it, of entertainment. Your play analogy is slightly more uh, approximate. Yeah, it's, yeah, Ronald yeah, Fry as himself. As himself, yeah. that's right. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to add in one further objection, actually, which, is, which is kind of contrast with Martin Fry, because Martin Fry, you know, for years has known that his most famous songs are those he did years ago, and as you know, when he's gone out and performed, he, he does those things yeah. and does them with a good grace. Van Morrison has occupied most of the last 40 years saying, I have no interest in the past. Yes, that's gone. That's history. What people should be interested in is what's going on now. Then as soon as somebody points out that he can get £200 a ticket for slavishly recreating his best record 40 years later, which is a little bit like Bobby Charlton pulling on a Manchester United shirt on Saturday and turning out and hoping he can still do it. I don't know if he did. People would go and see it. <laughs> yeah, I'd go and see that. <laughs> Well, they do, don't they? You know, <laughs> veterans football. But anyway, that's number one in that's my mind. Should, should you be allowed to heckle if you don't like Van Morrison? You should. You should, you should yeah. be allowed to pelt him with, uh, <laughs> with, with cans. So that's my number one in the most uncalled for uh, remakes in the history of entertainment. Anybody got any to add? But I, I'm, you know, I'm not keen on remakes at all. I mean, uh, we, we've had this conversation on the podcast, but I think it's an absolute, utter, total waste of time. I've not been to see one. I'm very, very violently anti-remakes. I'm very keen on the idea that people try and think of something. Oh, we were talking about this, weren't we, recently? We were talking about talking about Minder. Did I tell you about Psycho? I was quite excited because somebody put a thing on the on the on the on the site saying that I'd, I'd had a, I'd, I'd kind of I'd gone into a rant. I was quite excited because I'm not usually given to rants. So uh, it's quite. Oh, the Minder, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, well, I didn't watch that, but there's no. I, I mean, I you know I have to watch a lot of films. Um, for my job, and I see a lot of films which are made from old films, and I'm tired of seeing um, remakes of old films, but that doesn't mean they can't do it. It doesn't mean that one doesn't occasionally come along that has something interesting to say. Manchurian Candidate was remade, but updated 
and it's completely different. Uh, it was the same, took the same model basically, oh, the old one, good. brainwashed soldiers, and updated it. And, and was good. I would say not as good as the original, but it had something to say. Yeah, so I used to say, made by Jonathan Demi, you know, uh, Robin Hitchcock was in it. But anyway, it's uh, so occasionally a remake can be okay. It's never going to be as good as the original, but that one didn't attempt to be. It just took the story and redid it, like putting on a play. I think with films it can sometimes. So work. where do you stand with Gus Van Sant's remake of Psycho? Well, that was it was literally pointless. It was it was such an academic exercise, and yet it wasn't. Have you seen it? Yeah, but he he decided to do it shot for shot. But but Andrew, except he didn't. Oh, okay. Well, I mean, he he, he did, but he didn't. Well, it's in colour for a start. So why remake it in colour? Because one of the great things about it was that it was in black and white at a time when films were in colour. Hitchcock made it on the cheap for black and white, and it made it all the, all the more powerful, didn't it? blood is yeah, black, yeah, yeah, not yeah, red. Yeah. So if you're going to do an academic exercise, which he was, or at least that's what he said he was doing, why do it in, in colour? That's not academic then, is it? That's something else, that you're adding something to it. Also, you're putting sexier actors and actresses in it. See, my yeah, argument was... totally that unnecessary. It was kind of... It was, it was a pollution argument. It was kind of cluttering up the public space. Yeah. Because we all know that there is a thing called psycho, and it's the <laughs> Alfred Hitchcock film. And you can buy and it. it. And, it's, and you can buy it, and, and succeeding generations can go and see it and get exactly the same fright from it or, yeah. that, that I got when I first saw it. The only time I'd really badly fallen out with one of my children, when I nearly packed her bags and put them out on the street, was when she went to see Gus Van Zandt's bloody pointless remake of Psycho without going to see the real one first. Because you never get that moment back, do you? So that will be the original as far as... And, he, and, and, and what was it like? It wasn't very good. What did you expect? <laughs> Crying out loud! It wasn't very good because it was in colour. It was in colour. Do you get that, do you get that with, uh, with uh, your children when they go to see endless sequels of things? And their enthusiasm just declines slowly over, over the time. And they go, I don't know why they're bothering to make another one. Are you going to see it? Yeah. Well, that's why they're making another one. You know, vote with your feet. It was a glorious moment when they, when they, with the, um, what is it, the Star Wars, Star Wars, that's right, yes. I'm not very up on these Star Wars. It's, it's the, well, the whole new thing that all the kids are The kids are mad for it, The Phantom Menace? Phantom Menace. Phantom Menace. I can remember the build-up to that was absolutely... Because it was a prequel. Because it was a prequel. Well, it's not a prequel. And the weeks that went by in my home before people could actually put their hand up and say it was disappointing, which it clearly was. It had to be. Because the people going to see it went to see... This is the moment in time thing again. Went to see Star Wars if they were at the right age. And it meant something. It was the first film I went to see with a girl. Right? I mean, I I actually may as well not have been there, frankly. I was there to see Star Wars. (laughs) It was an important moment in my 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 young life. (laughs) You know, really important moment. Was was that the end of the relationship? It was the beginning (laughs) and the end of it, yeah. Um, But nevertheless, so Star Wars will always hold a magic for me because I saw it at a particular time. And I think most people who are absolutely mad about it is the point of... Yeah, beyond my love of it, dressing up. How much costume? You know, Star Wars has given me a whole new perspective on Star Wars. That has the idea that there was a generation of teenage boys who went along to see it with girls, and then weren't doing what all teenage boys should be doing with girls in the cinema, which is snogging, putting yeah. their arm around them, putting their arm around them. <laughs> <You're> <laughs> the, all that kind of stuff. Oh, you have something Excuse in your me. eye. All that kind of stuff. They weren't. They were just looking at the film, gawping at the film. Probably she went home halfway through. <laughs> you must have got a very bad review after. <laughs> How'd you take that to Collins? Well, we watched the bloody film. <laughs> Never happened in my day. A total waste of time. That's why they put out terrible films for, for young people, isn't it? It's to this day. Absolutely. It doesn't matter then. So people, no, seriously. Now, I want to know about this. People don't do this anymore. People don't go to the film, they go to the cinema and snog anymore. Do they, they don't need to. They've already had sex. 
It's, it's true, isn't it? And the age of ten. Yeah, they're, 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 well, they were fathers at the age of twelve. Going to sit where the novelty is somewhat worn off. I think. I have, well, to be fair, they do have double seats, don't they? In some cinemas, they do. Yeah. Do they? Yeah. Oh yes. Yeah. They used to have double seats. Do the Dewsbury Pioneer that I used to go to. <laughs> <laughs> they're very, yeah, very hard bench double seats, but they were much sought after. Really. Um, if you were hoping, you know, to um, yeah, well, I've anyway. seen the young people. They need one of those each. <laughs> but it's true, it's true people you know, people used to get, shall we go to the pictures just basically meant shall we go and snog yeah and there will probably be a yeah. film showing at the same time you know you, the main thing that the cinema had to provide was two hours of darkness yeah you know no anything else no parents <laughs> yeah, that's right and occasionally an usherette's torch being kind of you know <laughs> yeah. played upon you yeah yeah well there you go the word a magazine a website a podcast a way of life. So, um, you're talking about the business about people only admitting you later that things are disappointing. <laughs> I was thinking about this, about introducing a new thing on the website, actually, which is the kind of three-month... You know, you know, a bit like a prob- probationary period when somebody starts a job. Yeah. yeah? <laughs> For the first three months, you know, everything goes... It's a review. Yeah. And then, after three months, you should have a review, shouldn't you, with yeah. your manager... And basically, if they want to fire you at that point, yeah. that's working from both sides. <laughs> but but if, they want to, if they want to draw it to a conclusion, you know, at that point, it's not working, you can do that. Yeah. Everybody walk away. You know? I think there should be a similar thing with records. Okay. I think we should have, and I'm waiting for three months after the Bruce Springsteen record comes out. I'm going to put a thing on the site saying, okay, it's the three-month review now. Okay? And I want to know, really, what do you think of it? Yeah? And see if people are prepared to... Because during the, the few weeks that a record's coming out, everybody's, everybody's, the people who've bought it or heard it are very kind of pro it, aren't they? You know, everybody else is just not convinced. No, just, I've just got this cartoon image of, of this sort of three-month review where the Springsteen album comes back with its head down, <laughs> looking thoroughly ashamed of itself because it's deceived. Is that what you're saying? It's deceived, well, Jeremy. I just want to... I, I, well, you know, because... I think there's a huge difference. We all know this. We've heard millions of blooming records written and read millions of blooming reviews. And they all overstate the case, pro or, or anti, don't they? Yeah. You know, For they, me, these days, nearly always pro, because I tend to you know, be in a position where I pick and choose a little bit and try not to take things on that I don't think I'm going to like. Because yeah. I've got past the point of enjoying putting the boot in. Yeah. So I kind of, yeah, if you think, do you want to do the new Norman Cook record? I go, yeah, I'd like to review the Norman, yeah. Norman Cook record. That's how my thinking usually goes. So I'm in a good mood before I start. Um, so yes, generally pro. But overestimation is built into the process, isn't it? Well, it's just such a sort of supercharged moment, isn't it? You've, you've, you've got to make your mind up very quickly. You're, you're pressurised by what everybody else is simultaneously about to publish or announce and all the other media. Um, and, and, of course, increasingly, you, 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 you've scarcely heard the thing. I mean, uh, you know, there's quite a lot of controversy in, in our magazine about the fact that uh, occasionally you have to go and have the record played to you. You're not allowed to take it home and live with it. And um, all that makes for a very difficult um, yeah. situation to, to come up with an honest... Or you get it sent to you and it doesn't play in any of the... Any of the form. Any, any of the, the media. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. the scenes that you have about your house. I know. Because it's so rare... But don't you think the only... It seems I to think be, your three-month rule is a great idea. I think the only really honest reaction to a record tends to come three months later. Well, it's when somebody in the office, and you hear it in the office all the time, and somebody will always say, they'll always say it in exactly the same way. They'll say, do you know that so-and-so record? And people go, oh, yeah. It's really good. 
And they'll well, sort of say it with slight surprise. Hmm. You know, that's why because it's something that's crept up on them. And they know... I've written long reviews of stuff that have come down on one side or the other, and by the time that things appeared in print, I thought... I don't think I've, I don't believe that anymore. Actually. That's why I'm, I'm not convinced by that. Are anymore. you still playing it? Is, is a good question to well, ask. Well, absolutely. Yeah. I almost never am still playing it three months later. It's a rare record, like something like Elbow or in a couple of years ago, Arctic Monkeys, an album that I genuinely am still playing three months later for my own pleasure, having played it professionally, so I could yeah. hear it and assess it. Then will I go back to it? I was like, I think at the end of the year, the word was there's ten, ten albums, and they often are the ten albums that aren't. Particularly mm. celebrated uh, at the moment of release. They've just been, we've just lived with them, you know, asking the readership, we live with them, decided that they are tremendous company. It's the ones it's that kind of. It's going to sustain. It's the ones that sort of come, go away and come back, isn't it? <coughs> Those are the ones yeah. that, that you like. That's the iPod it, is interesting in that sense because you're carrying your record collection around with you, which I am, then I can listen to any record. Well, it's not all of it, but nearly every record that I've bothered to put in there. So I can go and listen to an old Cure record, which I often do. They're the things I come back to most out of all the records I own. The Cure and the Wu-Tang Clan. They are the two most played artists. I'm enjoying your Radio 2 thing. Can we plug it? Uh, Andrew's got a goth series. Is it still on the... Uh, no, it's not a series, I'm afraid, Mark. So you can't plug it. Was it a one-off? It was a one-off. Oh, Christ. That was all we could was get in. I was pleased to get an hour, I loved your line an hour on Radio 2. Are we all just a little bit scared of the dark? <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, yeah, Can we still catch it on the BBC iPlayer? It's on iPlayer until, yeah, until Saturday. It so what's it called? The, the G Word, it's called. It's, it's uh, called the G Word. Uh, Look uh, it up uh, on the BBC iPlayer. I shall do that myself. Goth in the 80s. So go on, you talk about the stuff that you still play. Which yeah, but, but, so, so I load in three new albums that I bought, and I do buy most of my new albums. Uh, and so I bought recently School of Seven Bells, The Secret Machines album, and White Lies. As it happens, White Lies won't play in my uh, Mac, so I haven't listened to it yet. I, I've... I've Spoken to the boss of fiction about this. He, he doesn't, can't help me. Uh, also to somebody from HMV. Uh, nobody can un- tell me whether there's something copy protected in it, which is stopping me playing on my Mac. Anyway, so I haven't listened to that yet. But the other two, uh, Secret Machines is a big loud thing. So I've got to be in the mood for a big loud thing. Uh, School of Seven Bells, which is somebody who was in the Secret Machines, uh, is much more gentle, dancey, uh, easier to listen to on a crowded tube. So I find myself listening to that quite a few times. But because everything's available, it'd have to be damn good for me to put it back on. Yeah, yeah. And so it's a really good sign if Absolutely. a week, two weeks, three weeks later I'm still playing the School of Seven Bells record. So that tells me all I need to know because I don't need to play it. I can play The Cure. I can play the Wu-Tang Clan. And I'm yeah. not. I'm playing that. Yeah. And that's the only test there is. I because think that's that's we should, about let's not stop reviewing albums when they come out. Forget it. Let the other well, people do we that. Don't, but believe me, we talked about it, haven't we, Mark? We talked about it you know, since the magazine started it. because it's... I mean, I don't, don't expect anybody to, to sympathise with this at all, but, you know, sitting down and listening to records, <laughs> you know, and when you want... You know, because music is a mood thing, and as soon as you turn it into a chore, you're kind of prejudiced against the thing, aren't you? You know, because music should creep up on you over a period of time, shouldn't yeah. it? Rather than yeah. hit you over the head. Although Fraser, who's over there operating the phases, uh, faders, had, a, had an interesting experience recently. Uh, Fraser was called upon to review the Bonnie Prince Billy record, which came uh, with copy protection all the way through it, so that in the middle of tracks, am I right, Fraser? Every two minutes. Every two minutes. No. Oh, yes, in the music, came along a voice saying, you are listening no. to a copy-protected whatever. Now, Fraser, you know, I, I would have been completely the same. Halfway through... So, track two, you don't just want to break the record. 
You want to take out all your money, you want to fly to America, to wherever Bonnie and Prince Billy yeah. is in a shack. In his little cabin. He's got his log cabin. Kick door. the door in, that, that'll be easy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Kick, kick the storm door in. Personally take revenge. Yeah. Because you can't yeah. introduce anything formal into the business of listening to music. You can he across the lawn by a bearded man with a blunderbuss. <laughs> it's not my fault. I'm going to cover his head. <laughs> Do you think that... I'm not naive enough to think that he doesn't know about it. I know he has this image to protect of being sort of, you know, living up a tree, but I don't, <laughs> I, he must yeah. know about this. Surely, somewhere down the line, somebody at his record company must say, this is how we're sending this out. Is that OK, Bonnie Prince? <laughs> <laughs> it's really, really and he must say, yeah, that's absolutely yeah, right. That really chimes with my lifestyle it's, and the way I think yeah. of music. Do you remember when the Burial Record came out last year and, and that had a... a um, yes, it that? did. Little thing it did, yeah. Just saying that it was... Uh, I can't Illegal down. Yeah, that could have been part of the music. In, in, a strange, yeah, but yeah. in a strange kind of um, computerized voice. Yeah. You know? And when I heard the record, I became so used to that, but I actually heard the record without that, I thought something was wrong. Then I've recently. I, want to get back. I, I, I don't get these. I'm not in BAFTA, but I was doing some work for BAFTA, so I got a few screeners, as yeah, they call yeah. them, which are, you know, the, the films that are sent out to the members of BAFTA, the thousands of members of BAFTA. So they can choose, because they don't go to the cinema, um, which film to give the award to. So they're very important things. And a couple of these came, and I thought, well, I just had to watch them for research, borrowed them. And they have, sometimes have, uh, uh, the prop- this is the property of Universal yeah, Pictures yeah. written through the middle of it. Now, I know why Universal Pictures have done that. I know why they've done that. Because they don't want that thing pirating, and they're having to send it out on a handy disc very early on. Yeah. But nevertheless, how is that going to help a member of BAFTA feel good about the film? Surely it's counterproductive in exactly the same way that this album was to you. Uh, it's not as intrusive as a voice no, coming I, in no, the middle no, of a piece of music. Because yeah. at least you can follow the, you know, the narrative yeah, of the film. It's a thing in the, the middle of it. You know, that's, yeah. not, ah, that's not how the filmmaker intended it. No, it's how the that's legal department intended, intended it. Yeah. Really. Yeah. Yeah. I hate all that. So uh, we're talking about you know, instant reactions to, to records. and you know, the, I always talk about the, the word office being the worst possible place to play a record because it's like... The hanging jury, you know, has decided. You know, is it that bad? It is, you know, because because whatever the first the first opinion voiced is always the one that, that everybody else kind of gets behind, you know. Yeah. But the U two record, which <laughs> can we talk about U two? Well, I think we yeah, should talk, talk about U two. Talk about U two. Yeah. I haven't heard it yet. They got a, got off to a bad start with uh, with the word uh, with the word massive, which I know will have hurt them very badly because Andrew Harrison looked at the cover and said, "This is the dullest." cover there has ever been on a record ever and uh, you know put that thought on the website and many people agreed actually and then they put out a single and uh, I've got to throw in my little bit here from the Brits that I, I, was at the, I was at the Brits when they came on and played the single and, uh, and I was twittering you know like you do at the Brits nowadays Brits 2009 twit, tweet epicenter and, uh, and, I, and I sent this tweet and Trevor Downey was sitting near me, also sent a tweet, and we both simultaneously said the same thing. This is subterranean homesick blues. It's it, up, it, but it's supposed to be, isn't it? I mean, is it supposed well, I don't to? know. I mean, it's so like it in, in delivery. It's unbelievable. I like that record. I like, I like the whole album. That's I haven't not, heard it yet. Look forward to hearing it. I'm, yeah, I'm, I really, I'm, 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 I like new U2 very much. Indeed. I don't like old U2, uh, which is a wonderful thing. I quite like you, know, you go to see these groups because they don't want to play. Do some, do some new... No, I don't, I don't want to hear the, the old cat. Oh, uh, you don't want to hear pride. The, and the, all the thing, I wonder what people uh, listening uh, thought about actually was the relationship between you two and, and the BBC. Actually. Yes, I two mean, two institutions uh, that I hold just, dear. If I could, uh, <laughs> if I could, <laughs> well, it's like Ticketmaster and Live Nation—they've yeah. merged. <laughs> it's a superpower summit. 
How lucky for the BBC to be associated with you. It's the unique way the BBC is funded. Yeah, there was an event. You have to call it an event. The BBC were trading an event, I think, called either BBC equals U2 or U2 equals BBC. I can't remember which it was now, but that was how it was built. Now, this I'm completely wrong. Um, part of this uh, agreement with, with the great corporation was that the group appeared promoting a new record on Culture Show on the Simon Mayo programme uh, in a live session with Joe Wiley. Yep, the live lounge. Um, the live lounge um, for one hour on the Chris Evans show, which I heard, and very, very good, absolutely very funny. Bono, brilliant at this stuff. Remember the, the weather girl, Sal, comes on to give you. Uh, no, it's the traffic girl. Yeah, Sally like, Traffic. Don't yeah. you heard that? And Bono is massaging her from behind. And so she sounds uh, really as though she's in some kind of sexual ecstasy all the way through. She said, There's a little bit of a pile up on the A303. <laughs> it's, you know, it's very dangerous. She is your target, you too, listen. Yeah. They were also on front row. Um, they were also a very much the heart of BBC 10 o'clock news um, uh, acknowledgement of the existence of Spotify. Yeah, yeah. To oh, the extent yeah. that you actually thought that these that you two were the kind of the evan- evangelists who probably pretty much started the whole <laughs> And they finished up, as you know, performing on the roof of the, of the you BBC. Missed, you missed Jonathan Ross? They were on Jonathan Ross. Jonathan Ross yeah. I think you missed Zane Lowe as well, actually. Oh, oh, and Zane Lowe, sorry. Yeah. Can we just list the things sorry. they weren't on? Yeah. <laughs> right? They John weren't Ross. on. They weren't yeah. on the Money Programme. They weren't on Blue Peak. Cranford. They weren't, <laughs> <laughs> they weren't on uh, that new programme about how to grow your own medicines last night. The parody is a brilliant bit on Jonathan Ross. They are a match of the day, aren't they, every week, because they got the theme to pull out a copy of the record on the Jonathan Ross show, I think, because I didn't see him, somebody told me to say, say, oh, by the way, here is a copy of our record, it's not out until Tuesday, but probably gives Jonathan Ross this copy. No, but the point I was going to make was that, and I saw the, I was invited to that broadcast, I'd like to have gone, but I I couldn't, I was driving out London, so I listened to the whole of the the Chris Evans uh, build-up to it. And I watched it on the red button, Dave. You know, I saw the entire footage. And it is the most extraordinary thing, because you two, you see the highlights of this whole thing. You two arriving at the BBC. Sorry, we can't stop the sign autographs. This is live radio, etc. There's the interview with Joe Wiley. Joe Wiley, a lovely girl, but she's not the greatest interviewer, I don't think. And if I tell you, Dave, that some of the questions that were left into the edits, and God knows what the other ones were like, <laughs> that she was asking were things like, so Bono, are you going to give us all of your tour dates or just some of them? You know, it's that, that really? level of inquiry going on. Did she ask where they got their crazy name? I should, I should have done. <laughs> Wasn't she the one who asked the cause when they got their crazy name? Somebody famously asked the cause, didn't they? Which, you know, I think that's a proper thought. But anyway, the point I'm going to make is I don't particularly blame you 2 for this because I think maybe it was U2's idea and U2's idea has been accepted. For God's sake, they're doing exactly the same thing right now as we speak in America. They started on, on March the 3rd, whatever the date is today, probably is the 3rd, isn't it? It's it is a They start tonight <coughs> in one of five consecutive nights on the David Letterman show as the house band. And this is a complete and utter monopoly of the media. Has that right? ever happened before, by the way? Do I know? don't think that has happened. I don't no. remember ever. No, See, I it think... But let me, let me just finish, because what seems so extraordinary to me is I'm not blaming you two, because you two are looking for every opportunity to announce the arrival of this group, of this uh, record, and they're also looking very much for an opportunity to remind people they're not a nostalgia act. I totally understand that. Yeah. They're not the Rolling Stones. Everybody has to be seen to be moving forward. We're not just going to play all the old hits. But, you know, I'm, I'm just... My feeling is that I, I can't understand why the same BBC that are, you know, directing so much um, kind of scrupulous attention to their transparency. Even this morning I read this incredible story about the dear old human Google's team have been disallowed the university challenge. They've all had records, presumably, have been wiped 
haven't they? Yeah. Because, you know, some tiny little aberration... Well, it wasn't a tiny aberration, Mark. He wasn't a student. He's an accountant. <laughs> he was a student at the beginning. Yeah. He was a student at the beginning. He was Simon Sharma. They can be, they can be <laughs> scrupulous about that, and yet completely allow this group <laughs> to, to walk all over the network. <laughs> Well, there's a culture. Okay, I'm going to explain, explain that to one me. cultural point. The BBC, as an as an organisation, is starstruck from top to bottom. So, if a big star comes along and says, "Tell what, we'll play with you. We won't play with anybody else," they go, oh, "Brilliant! Come in. Take anything you want." That's what they do. But I think actually it's counterproductive. I think the Letterman case is a really interesting case because. Letterman is assuming that all the people who watch his programme like you too. Mm. No, they That's don't. That's an assumption that That's a lot of people That's a terrible make. assumption. Yeah. And they're a really popular group. By Wednesday, yeah. they'll be furious. Yeah. And by Friday, they'll be <laughs> petrol bombing the opposite. <laughs> or not watching TV. them. Or not watching yeah. TV is a different thing. It's like radio is a different thing, you know? Because most of the time when people watch TV and radio they, and listen to radio, they don't want it to be special. They want it to be sort of like it always is. Yeah. I expect it at a certain time. Whereas the, 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 the thing that chills you to the marrow is when you turn a thing like this on and they go, this week, it's all change. Mm -hmm. We're giving over everything to Comet Relief, you two, yeah. uh, whatever, the World editors. Cup, whatever uh, it is. You know, guest editors in magazines and newspapers still do it. You know, when the enemy uh, was recently, last year, guest edited by the Mighty Boosh, for instance, they made the decision that all of their readers like the Mighty Boosh. Now, they're probably right to a degree. But there must have been a couple just thought, oh, not that bloody bloke dressed as a gorilla again. And, oh, my God. <laughs> and what, this is chosen by a member of the Mighty Boots as well. There must have been a few that thought, give it a rest. There isn't, there is, you can never assume that, that any individual or act or whatever no. is, ever, is no. ever liked by even a majority. No. But anyone who's, in the, anyone who's in the audience business, which you are if you're exactly. a magazine or a newspaper, you boys. have to make assumptions all the time. Which band are you putting on the cover? Well, you can only put one. Yeah. And basically, the BBC have put you two on the cover this week, haven't they? They'll be they gone next week. They'll, They'll be gone next but week. But two more points. I mean, I'm trying to think what the analogy is. There must be some analogy. It's a bit like saying you won the franchise to cover, I don't know, the FA Cup. But rather than celebrate football and the FA Cup, you're just trying to celebrate Manchester United. There must, you know, it's, you know, is there another group that they would have done the same thing for? How, you know, I don't expect, obviously, that the Rolling Stones had ever organised themselves to the extent that they would have offered the BBC a package. They can't be bothered but to do all that know, stuff. Would, if they had, would they have accepted it? Would, would, would you know, Coldplay, I would imagine, probably sell just as many tickets and probably more records, actually. There's no band would, like, they, would they have accepted I don't know. There's no know. band like U2, is the fact of the matter. No, I mean, this is a band that have been in the same lineup since they began. They, they seem to get on fairly well. They're absolutely completely upfront about we are selling our records. And also, oh, yeah, yeah, and I'm you not saying that they're not good at it. They are really good at it. Yeah, they I mean, are, they, and they, they're, they, they're, they're, they're good at making records. I listened to the entire Chris, Chris Evans show stuck in a, in a traffic jam, and it was absolutely riveting. And, of course, they allowed the readers to, you know, listen to one to, 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 you know, ask questions, which were, which were really good questions, really simple questions, like, what is the greatest concert you've ever seen? Mm. I discovered that Bono's greatest concert was seen, you know, it wasn't the Clash in 1977, that has now been superseded by Leonard Cohen at the, uh, Dublin last year. Fair enough. For the following reasons, and I couldn't agree more with it. The truth of the matter is that you two have found what they were looking for, <laughs> which is this kind of weird mix between being the most famous band in the world but still having a little tiny, and I mean tiny, bit of credibility, just enough keep going he can still be he still thinks that George Bush was okay Bono doesn't he so he gets away with that somehow I don't know. and said so yeah Bush is okay Paul right Wolfowitz he's a great guy uh, anyway so he gets away with all that still have a, a slither of, of, of uh, credibility which they shouldn't have by now but they still have got it 
and they're selling, the last record sold, what, twice as many as one before? They're selling a fortune's worth of records, aren't they? And that is what they do for a living. Do you Every, think they're going to do it? I mean, no, the I don't think they're going to do it. As a licensed player, player and, and somebody who's paid by the BBC to do various things, I think they shouldn't have done so much stuff. No, it's no. ridiculous. It doesn't, it's no good for Joe Wyatt. They but they're that. also on Zane Lowe and Chris Evans. That's not they good for there's a moment. There's a moment where Bono is obliged, obviously, and the, gosh, the concert is the most beautifully shot thing. Have you seen this thing? Yeah. It's the most, it's this helicopter shot, it's a beautiful night, it was raining, it looked fabulous, and he's obliged to not only thank the corporation for allowing him to do it, but also to thank the Metropolitan Police. Uh, he's looking down from the top of Broadcasting House down Regent Street. And now, when I was a kid, sorry, I'm going to say this, because, damn, am I just getting old, Dave? When I was a kid, I, you know, the idea that the groups that I loved and respected and followed would ever thank the police for anything. <laughs> no I mean, I remember going to a concert in 1971. When I, when I were a teenager, with, was attended also by word writers Andy Gill and Paul DeNoyer, who didn't know at the time, called Wheelie Festival, which was policed solely by Hell's Angels. And I'm not going to sit here and say they did a good job, Andrew. I mean, if, if their idea But you knew was, where you were. But at least you knew where you were. Exactly. It was run by the Hell's Angels. But John, the idea that we now have groups thanking the Metropolitan Police for allowing these events to happen. Can I just take issue, one with more, one more aspect of this, this whole tired, you know, parade of, of promotional gestures. <coughs> rooftop concerts. Yeah, go on. What's the point of rooftop concerts? After the first one, no. We're, we're down here. <laughs> Again. Why are you up there? And particularly on such a tall building. It's a ridiculously tall building. It's, also it's basically you're saying, we're going to have a photo opportunity, which you're invited you're to come along and you be, be part of the you know? Also, also, Bono did reference very obviously. One was he goes, "Dig it, dig it." He said, "It's obviously a very, very obvious reference to the people who first did this." Yeah. Well, let's talk about other people who did rooftop concerts. Am I correct in thinking that Sham sixty nine did a rooftop concert down I, Oxford I, I Street it on a, on a, 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 a sloping roof, <laughs> <laughs> pitch, pitch roof? <laughs> Flimsy roof. I hope somebody, somebody <laughs> opened a window. <laughs> Jimmy went. So, I believe did. you're right, actually. Uh, they did, didn't they? Terry Staunton, an old enemy mate of mine, now writing for Word and other places, he was compiling a list in the week, and he, I believe they were on his, his master list. I, I can't remember exactly where, but yeah. I think it was the management, the top of the management building in Oxford Street, yeah. some, something like that. Uh, who else did one? Did, did the well, the HMV had, they had Echo and the Bunny Men on to open the store, yeah. and, then, and Blur certainly played on top of HMV while I worked at Q uh, on the same street. Um... And uh, you two friends were playing in. in they did a Los video, Angeles. didn't they? But yeah. that was quite a low building. Yeah. Traffic, yeah. Where from the street people could see them. Yeah. It was only like I a two story building. on a park bench, but they most by <laughs> kept <laughs> camera angles. <laughs> but it's a tired idea, isn't it now? Oh, absolutely knackered. Yeah. It is. Can I just uh, say that I found in my 1981 diary. Uh, Which Andrew brought with him. Uh, just so get the words right. Um, January the 17th, so I'm 15, and I bought a ticket to go and see U2, which will be my first ever gig. Uh, All right? uh, it was at the you're Nen, taking that girl? Nen College. <laughs> no, I, I've, I knew I wasn't going to be interested. <laughs> it was with me when I went to see my first gig. U2, had, uh, Boy had just come out, which I must have got uh, at the end of the year before. And I went to Our Price Records, which is where you went and bought the tickets. It was a college gig, Nen College Students' Union, U2, uh, Thursday, January the 29th, £2. 
which in itself is kind of sweet, isn't it? Yeah, 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 Current yeah. climate we're talking about. And, what uh, what year is that again? Uh, it's 81. I bought the ticket. It says, I've got a ticket ace. There's a picture of me holding up my ticket, jumping in the air. That's oh, so excited so I was sweet. with the words U2 behind me. Me and Craig went to town and purchased our pieces of £2 cardboard. Wow, ace, of course. We're, we're going to say. take a, a photograph of Andrew with this diary. Okay. That's that's a beautiful. Beautiful. Oh, look at this! I went to see them. This is the, so that's, I bought it on the Saturday. This is like an illuminated manuscript, <laughs> isn't it? Yeah. And I went to see them about a week and a half later. I mean, that's how you know, I, I saw bought them. It. I saw 1981. them, and there they were. There's yeah. a drawing of you too. I saw them at the Bracknell Sports Centre in 1981, and I interviewed them for a, a cassette magazine called Terrific. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I was just there as a person. And the crowd, I've just tried to describe the crowd in terms of tribes, which a lot of people were in in 1981, and I've said that that. 10% of the crowd were punk, yeah. 10% were electronic, yeah. which means they were, had fringes. <laughs> I was halfway between punk and electronic at that time. And I think that this is, this is, this is probably significant. 80% don't know. So even that's then, brilliant. you too had the, had the don't knows. <laughs> no wonder they're so massive. That's a fantastic <laughs> review. That's so brilliant. 10% punk. No wonder that girl didn't want to go home with you. Oh, Andrew, did you enjoy your YouTube content? 10% punk. 10% don't know. <laughs> I even mentioned the one little element that the BBC's U2 coverage had that came as the biggest shock to me is they had me. They had me, they had some old whistle test footage of me interviewing Bobo and the Hedge um, backstage at the Winterland, uh, the, yeah, win- not Winterland, what am I talking about, Meadowland, um, in, I don't know, four, five or something, it was on the website. So the website, somebody told me about Did it you on get the massive royalty check. Uh, I, I, I haven't <laughs> gone through my post, Mark, so uh, I don't know. But I have got, I've got an appeal from the BBC Contracts Department that they want to rerun a film I made in Japan at about 1984. Uh, and they're offering me something like 20% of the original fee or something. But, but let me tell you, when I, 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 I devoted some time to looking at the contract in real detail, and they've got a special clause for, um, for showing TV programmes to what they call trapped audiences. Not captive, wow. trapped. <laughs> trapped audiences are uh, people in prisons or people on oil rigs. Really? They're actually trapped. Yeah. That's how they're described in the BBC contract. That is one thing I've learned this week. That is no terrible punishment. And you will go to jail for ten years and you'll be forced to watch, watch David Hedge with the big Japan. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Never do it again. Oh, oh, in many oh, ways. Oh, oh, we're all trapped. We're Have you learned anything this week, Andrew? Uh, I'll well, okay. reasonably quickly because I learned something twice in a week, which I think is pretty good going. Um, I learnt this, I learnt, you may know about it, and I apologise if you do, but I didn't do very well at history at school, and I'm in a process of self-education, as I admitted in the most recent magazine. And I found out about triangular trade. Do you know about that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, I I didn't know about it before. I didn't know about it. Triangular trade was something that went on during uh, the years of slavery, where we would basically go down to Africa, um, give them a lot of stuff, get some slaves, then take the slaves to the Caribbean. That's right. They helped us grow lots of sugar. We took the sugar back to this country, turned it into booze, and then took it back and sold it and got some more slaves. Very nice. Interesting fact, but I learnt it twice in a week, which I think is interesting. I learnt it once in the excellent new French movie, The Class, which I'm sure you've read about, which is set in a uh, big comprehensive school uh, in the uh, suburbs of Paris. It's a, it, it looks like, for all the world, like a documentary. It's actually a drama that was based on improvisation, based on the experiences of a teacher who plays himself. It's a brilliant film. If you haven't seen it, it's absolutely superb. It's just come out. The Class, one can last year. And one of the students talks about Triangular Trade. That was the first time I'd ever heard about it. And I know what uh, the other one was, because it was on TV last night. Last night, I heard about it again. 
What was it? It was uh, Who Do You Think You Are? And who it do you think you are? Kevin, chummy out of uh, Kevin Morse. Whiteley. Kevin Whiteley, oh, Kevin Whiteley who, was, who describes himself as a good lefty, turned out that uh, his <laughs> ancestor was in the slave trade. Big My in the slave trade. Well, she sat on the sofa just going, Lewis, all the way through. It is brilliant. In a cautionary way. Can I add one further thing that I've learned this week? I can add that at the end. You won't do that. Mark Ellen has confessed he hasn't learned anything this week. Or if he has, he's forgotten. I've had the flu. I've had the flu. I'm, I'm ready. <laughs> no, I tell you what I did learn, actually. Uh, I learned I missed Bob Monkhouse. I did because I was reading an interview, uh, a, a, a piece about him. And he said, on his 73rd birthday day, he was being interviewed. And he said, what's it like being 73? He said, he said uh, I mean, you still you know, the man you used to be. And he said, I, I still enjoy sex at 73. I live at 75, so it's no distance. <laughs> <laughs> can I just let's see that joke coming? One of here. the many reasons to give respect to Bob Monkhouse, I do think he's kind of, he's, he's, he's uh, post, you know, he's, he's, he's yeah. legacy in that, that yeah. charitable, um, he appears in that poster campaign, doesn't oh, he? Yeah, for, for, for it's cancer checkups check or whatever. It's yeah. offensive humour. Yeah. Is it yeah. prostate cancer? It's something like yeah, that. It it's is, be yeah. checked out, you know, yeah. because I wasn't or something. Yeah. I think that's a fine bequest. That it is. Is. I do too. Anyway, yeah. another thing I learned this week was uh, it comes from the same era as the, as the triangular trade, actually. That Benjamin Franklin, when he wanted to get ahead in publishing in Philadelphia when he was about 19 years old, he decided that there was an opportunity to compete with a very successful almanac. But he was going to launch his own. So what he did was he circulated the rumour that the guy who published the original almanac was dead. He said, you know, <laughs> those, of you, those of you who've enjoyed Mr. So-and-so's almanac were sad to hear. We'll be, we won't have heard the news that last week he turned his toes up, so we won't be able to produce it in future. Instead, why not buy mine? You know. Brilliant. That's a brilliant oh, Richard Desmond hasn't thought of that one. It <laughs> wouldn't work now because being dead will help you sell books. A, a publishing thing that I've learned this week, yesterday, is that television sells books. I went into two massive bookshops in the West End of London to buy uh, and the next novel by David Peace, who's The Damned United, is going to be a film, and whose yeah. Red Riding Quartet is about to appear on television. In two Comes days from time. the same town as me. Well, I can't, I can't wait. I've read uh, 1970, um, the first one, 1974, and I wanted to buy 1977. Couldn't buy it in either of those shops. They had sold out of David Peace books. Presumably because this television programme is coming. It's, well, that's good news, isn't it? Television sales books, good news for well, publishing, good news Richard for the dumbing Julia up. changed the entire yeah. book publishing. These books are a little bit nasty for Richard and Julia. I think probably yeah. not. Yeah. So what, you brought, you brought uh, an ELO souvenir with you. I brought my ELO, ELO fan club um, paraphernalia, um, which is a sad reason for bringing it in. I, I wrote about it and it was, it was uh, reproduced in Word magazine. But uh, because Kelly Graucott... Uh, the bassist from ELO has died, sadly, age 63 last week, which is a sad thing that I learned, I suppose. And I was keen to go back uh, and find my Walker Prince, which had the full old oh, classic no. lineup. He was in a classic lineup, basically. Oh. Uh, so he played bass, but also sang vocals on a couple of tracks. Describe those There's a lot of enormous collars, the uh, massive amount of hair, huge. Uh, actually, not as many of them had beards as I seem to remember them all having beards. Yeah. The three of them didn't. But Kelly Graucott had a kind of sort of beard. He had this huge frizzy hair and these big sort of. Are they called mutton chops? What are they? Sort of yeah. hanging, yeah, hanging yeah, off yeah, yeah. Uh, And uh, it looked fantastic. There's no way any of these men could have come from anywhere but the West Midlands. That's, <laughs> yeah. that's why I love them. <laughs> And I love them in retrospect, and I love them now. I've been playing Out of the Blue constantly since he died, in tribute in my ears, especially Sweet is the Night, which he sings, and it's a beautiful song. But I looked in through the old newsletters to find something specifically about him, uh, just as a tribute, and I found one in this particular newsletter, uh, which uh, has a picture of them meeting 
the Duke and Duchess of Gloucester and Tony <laughs> Curtis on the front. Which, uh, which, uh, oh, the life of a chart-busting pop star. Kelly's got a suit on, right? Uh, he's still got the big old hair and the, and the mutton chops. He looks like he's in court. <laughs> his anyway, mother still didn't dress up. His birthday took place while they were on tour. You know, the Out of the Blue tour with this huge... Um, Spaceship was head built. Yeah. Which we saw again take wow. that, descend yeah. in uh, the Brits. Yeah, I would love to have seen that, and if they ever do that again, they can't now because he's dead, but if they ever did that again, I would never go because it wouldn't be the same. But anyway, let's go and find what happened on his birthday. So they're in uh, Chesapeake Bay, apparently, a spell of relaxation there. Melvin Gale managed to hook himself a four pound big blue buster of a fish. Well done, Melvin, it says there. Oh, <laughs> and then Kelly Graucott's birthday on September the 8th. This must be 1977, I'd imagine, 78. Uh, nice excuse for a party. The food was a bit abysmal. Uh, I should read it in a Birmingham accent. The food was a bit abysmal, so ELO disposed of it all in the bath. <laughs> topped up with just about all the liquid refreshment they could lay their hands on. And they decided it was too good a treat for Kelly to miss out on. So in he went. <laughs> but in his panic, in his panic not to get his cash soaked, Kelly grabbed for his pockets and completely forgot he was wearing a $300 watch. <laughs> $300, Mr. Vig. <laughs> Could have bought a four-storey house with that. Mick Kaminsky's birthday was a quiet affair in comparison a week earlier. Just a nice night out in a favourite restaurant with a presentation cake made like the ELO logo. Oh, oh so what great days they were. I love the way the headline of your, your ELO newsletter is, is, is it like fantastic? <laughs> like fantastic. Like fantastic. Now, this is from Looking. I, I took out a Looking. Oh, looking. Oh, it's fantastic. So they described bed, ELO better than anyone else could. The Electric Light Orchestra, hereafter called ELO, and probably not everybody's idea of a, what a chart-hit band should be. After all, they include a violin player and two cellists, and that's not normally the formula for top ten regulars. So what's the, what's, what's the best ELO record, finally? Out of Blue is the best album. What's the best, what's the best single track? Because everybody listening to this podcast has got to go away today and listen to an ELO track I with would... all your concentration. And I'm going to tell you what it is. Cool. Can't get it out of my head. Later. From, from came Eldorado, from Eldorado, yeah, that's very it? late on. Is it late? Well, late compared to the... I love that record. You know, I've got a bit of a hole in my, uh, in my knowledge. Oh, really? Because, yeah, at this time, I lived in this sort of fun student hippie commune where we didn't listen to English music. We thought oh, English yeah. music was bad. I mean, so, yours was about 1977. You weren't in your hippie culture. How much more was it English? No, no, right, no, right. Anyway. 76 uh, was New World Record. That's when they really went. went yeah. But uh, every time an ELO record pops up on Spotify in the office, people just, they smile, don't they? I people, love Mr. Blue Sky. ELO still sounds wonderful Mr. now. Mr. Blue Sky is still as good work. now as it always was. That's but, it. but for Kelly Graucut, listen to uh, Sweet Is The Night, which he sings, which is a beautiful song. Yeah. Andrew, thank you very much for coming. It's been fun. This week. Uh, will you find your way back to the station? No, I possibly not. Because Andrew got lost. I got lost. Way. Way. lost. Anyone who knows the area will know that it's really we're not very far from, from a tube station. <laughs> this podcast was brought to you by The Word. Details at wordmagazine.co.uk. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.